I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, and that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we dare our as we seek life. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we attempt to understand good and evil, not through a lens of moral and societal norms, but rather through the lens of life that we have been gifted in Scripture. A few weeks back, we read of the various blessings that Jacob received. One week, it was a blessing from Isaac, and the following week, it was a blessing straight from God. In chapter 28, Jacob received the blessing of Abraham from the mouth of God. Your seed will be as the dust of the earth. That means a lot of kids, right? Something that neither his father nor his grandfather had experienced. Interestingly enough, God accomplished this growth of Jacob's seed by allowing Jacob to experience the deception that he himself had perpetrated on his own father and brother. This quick growth was also accomplished through Jacob's favoritism and the battle of the sisters for his affection that we read of last week. And God used his own judgment and justice in repaying Jacob in kind for his failures as the means for the accomplishment of his blessing. Now think about that for a moment. Jacob deceived his father and brother. God then allowed Jacob to have a taste of his own medicine. And it was this enactment of God's justice as punishment that brought the blessing that God had promised. Jacob then acted in favoritism in the same manner as his parents, this negative emotional fallout, infighting, envy, and jealousy that became the secondary means of accomplishing the blessing of Abraham and Jacob. Pretty incredible, right? That God would at the same time punish, but then use that punishment as the means of blessing. That's really profound if you sit and really contemplate that for a while. So the chapter before, in Genesis 27, Jacob had received the blessing of Isaac, his father. And this blessing of Isaac included an increase in physical wealth. God give you the dew of the heavens and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Well, up to this point, we have not seen this blessing carried out in the life of Jacob. In fact, when Jacob arrived in Haran, he was penniless for whatever reason. He then spent the next 14 years of his life not working for his own benefit, but working for the wives and the children that he gained. And in this time, he gained no real wealth for himself. Now, though, finally, Jacob has the opportunity to gather some of those promised resources. And once again, we find that the way that God is working to accomplish this blessing it's just as confounding to our sensibilities as the previous examples of God working through the deception and favoritism. And herein lies the challenge of this Parsha. Now, as we've gone through Scripture up to this point, we've encountered some very difficult passages, things that don't make sense to our modern sensibilities, things that are completely foreign to us, stories that confuse us or turn our stomachs or make us snicker at the ignorance of these backwards people. We have encountered miraculous events. We've read of chance encounters, cosmic destructions, impossible military victories, 
and so many more things that have conspired together to bring about God's blessing on his chosen people. Well, let's add this passage as simply another one of those extremely confusing texts that can be difficult to pierce the meaning of. What in the world is going on in this chapter? Well, there are a lot of possibilities, but there are a lot of things that we simply don't know or cannot know. And that leaves us with the question, what is it that's being affirmed in this passage? Because the things we can't know, those don't matter. Let's find out what's being affirmed. And that will give us our focus and will help us to understand what it is that Scripture is saying here. So let's read the story, and then I'll discuss the implications of such a story as part of this text that we call Holy Scripture. Genesis 30, 22 through 31, verse 2. And Elohim remembered Rachel, and Elohim listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, Elohim has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Yosef and said, Hashem has added to me another son. And it came to be when Rachel had born Yosef that Yaakov said to Lavan, Send me on my way to go to my own place and to my land. Give my wives and my children for whom I have served you, and let me go, for you yourself know my service which I have done for you. And Lavan said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, please stay, for I have diligently watched that Hashem has blessed me for your sake. And he said, Name your wages, and I give it. And he said to him, You know how I have served you, and how your livestock has been with me. For the little you had before I came has increased greatly, and Hashem has blessed you since my coming. But now, when am I to provide for my own house too? And he said, What do I give you? And Yaakov said, Give me not, if you do this for me. I shall again feed and guard your flocks. Let me pass through all your flocks today, removing from there all the speckled and spotted sheep, and all the black ones among the lambs, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and these shall be my wages, and my righteousness shall answer for me in time to come. When you come concerning my wages, every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats, and black among the lambs, it is stolen if it is with me. And Levan said, See, let it be according to your word. And on that day he set aside the male goats that were speckled and spotted, and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had some white in it, and all the black ones among the lambs, and gave them into the hands of his sons. And he put three days' journey between himself and Yaakov, and Yaakov fed the rest of Levan's flocks. And Yaakov took for himself rods of green poplar, and of the almond and chestnut trees, peeled white strips in them, and exposed the white which was in their rods. And he set the rods which he had peeled before the flocks in the gutters, in the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink, and they conceived when they came to drink. So the flocks conceived before the rods, and the flocks brought forth streaked, speckled, and spotted. And Yaakov separated the lambs and made the flocks face toward the streaked, and all the black in the flocks of Levan. But he put down his own flocks by themselves, and did not put them with Levan's flock. And it came to be whenever the strong ones of the flock conceived, that Yaakov placed the rods before the eyes of the flock in the gutters, so that they would conceive among the rods. But when the flocks were weak, he did not put them in. So the weak ones were Levan's, and the strong ones were Yaakov's. Thus the man increased very much, and had many flocks, and female and male servants, and camels and donkeys. And he heard the words of Levan's son, saying, Yaakov has taken away all that is our father's, and from what belonged to our father he has made all his wealth. And Yaakov would look at the face of Levan and see that it was not toward him as before. So the first question that everyone has when they read this chapter for the first, 
or the tenth or the hundredth time is, what the heck? What just happened? Out of all the Torah, this is perhaps the story that causes the most confusion and bafflement of any. And there are several things going on here that are simply a mystery. We don't get it. So first, let's retell the story just so we can be sure that we know what's happening here. So Jacob has worked for 14 years at a minimum for Laban. For the first seven years, Jacob didn't receive any wages. Only after these seven years were completed did he receive his wages. Laban, however, cheated Jacob in his requested wages, and so Jacob is forced to work for another seven years for what he truly desired. During the second set of seven years of labor, Jacob receives two wives, two concubines, and eleven children. Now that, that's a long seven years if you ask me. I've tried doing the math of this, and it's difficult to understand how this could have possibly happened in seven years. Even if there is a set of twins included or overlapping pregnancies with the concubines of Leah, most of these women were pregnant all the time. At least one was pregnant at all times. And that's why I say that it's a minimum of seven years. In reality, it could have been more. It could have been that he stayed a little bit longer, and that Joseph may have been conceived just after the seven years passed, and so he waited around till the birth of Joseph. I don't know. I don't get it. it the, the timing doesn't quite add up in my mind. I'm sure there's a way that it can fit, but it means a whole lot of immediate pregnancy after giving birth, which can happen. That's, that's entirely possible to happen. Well, at the end of this time, at the end of this 14 years, Jacob is done. And so he goes to Laban and he requests to leave. And he says, I have completed what I have agreed to do. So now, please, just let me go in peace. Laban, though, Laban's grown wealthy due to Jacob's service. He's not about to release that proverbial goose that lays the golden eggs. And so he states, I have seen that I have been blessed because you are favored of Hashem. Name your wages, I will pay them. Now, Jacob responds with, I have been faithfully working with your flocks, and the little bit that you had when I arrived has been increased. But i got to provide for my family as well. So he says, so what do you want? And Jacob responds, I don't want a simple set of wages. I want a portion of what I've been doing all these years. I don't want a set number. I don't want a salary. I want a percentage. Now that's smart business right there. Not even the best portion even. He doesn't ask for the best part. He asks for the unwanted portion. He asks for the spotted, the speckled, the undesirable, the unperfect. Why are they undesirable? Well, their wool is multicolored. It's not as valuable. Pure white, pure black, those are desirable because you can make singular colored garments with them, especially the white ones you can dye. The multicolored ones, though, you have spots all over your clothes. So Laban agrees to this, and he separates the spotted and the speckled, and he sends them away from Jacob. He then gives Jacob his own flocks of those outwardly perfect sheep for him to care for. Laban's idea is perhaps that the blessing on Jacob from God will transfer to his own flocks, and he will reap the reward of this, while Jacob's wages will remain with his own sons who are not blessed, and Jacob will once again be cheated out of the wages that he should earn. Once again, we see this deceptive nature of Laban peeking through the narrative, and uh, we'll see it again. 
because that deceptive nature of Laban is always there lurking in the background. So then here comes the fun part. Jacob takes Laban's flocks and he works a bit of what is sometimes known as sympathetic magic. Now, sympathetic magic is the belief that an object can be supernaturally affected by associating it with something that is similar in concept, form, or energy. It's using some sort of representative item to affect a target item. In voodoo, the, the dolls that they create is a form of sympathetic magic, but that's not the only example that's available to us. But you get the idea. You create a doll that's similar in form, you put something of similar energy on the doll, and then what you do to the doll affects the person that it's connected to. That's sympathetic magic. So what Jacob is doing here appears to be a type of sympathetic magic. He wants striped and speckled offspring from these outwardly perfect animals, and so he creates a thing with stripes and speckles on it for them to look at while they're mating. That makes perfect sense, right? Well, it appears to work. Laban's flocks begin to bear imperfect offspring which, according to their deal, now belong to Jacob. In fact, the increase in Jacob's flocks is so great that by the end of this Parsha, Laban's sons, they get envious of Jacob, and Laban begins to dislike and even hate Jacob. So here comes the confusion. The thought at this point is to focus on the sympathetic magic and ask, does sympathetic magic work? Is that the point of the story? Well, perhaps it does, perhaps it doesn't. I don't think that's the, what Scripture is affirming here, is that sympathetic magic is something that can be used. God's not revealing a way of exploiting nature. Magic itself in any form is forbidden in Torah. Add to this that it's never worked in any scientific attempt to replicate this process. The, the specific example has been tried by some, and it simply doesn't work. The genetics that were part of the sheep carried on in the same way that they always had, regardless of what kind of tree one uses, regardless of the orientation of the stripes, regardless of whether sheep or goats were used, and much, much more. They've tried so many different variations to try to mimic what's going on in this chapter. Now, frankly, I've heard a lot of really bad teachings on this topic that attempt to give some weight to the efficacy of sympathetic magic. It worked for Jacob, in the, it's in scripture, so there must be something to it. That is missing the point, in my opinion. It's losing sight of the forest because of one, that one crazy-looking tree. And then with that focus, demanding that this one crazy-looking tree be the thing that's being affirmed in all this text. And what I see happening here can be discovered by comparing a couple of things from the last Parsha and something that will come up in the next Parsha that we're going to discuss today and uh, we're going to do something else next week. So last Parsha, we looked at the first verse, the last verse, and both of the vignettes in the middle and pointed out that one of the main themes that was being highlighted throughout that entire Parsha was that it was Hashem who was the one who's responsible for giving life. It started with him favoring the unfavored and giving a child to Leah. It ended with him finally showing favor to Rachel and blessing her with a child. And in the middle, with the stories of Rachel's unreasonable request that Jacob give her a child or she'll die, and Rachel trading a night with Jacob for the fertility enhancer of the mandrakes. All of these verses and the, all of these stories, they're providing a commentary to the fact that God controls life, nothing else. Now, if we look forward to the next partial, we will find that God gives Jacob a dream in which he sees the males of the flocks that were mounting the females were streaked and speckled. We can extrapolate from that 
It was God that caused the offspring of the flocks to be spotted and speckled, not what Jacob did. And if we stop and we only look at that one story in isolation, we will miss this point. These surrounding passages, they give us the information that we need to understand that Scripture is not confirming the practice of sympathetic magic as a simple surface as a simple surface reading would seem to indicate. In the same way, the passage about casting lots are not there to indicate that all of our decisions should be made based on casting of lots. Now that means that there is something else going on here, and I can only think of two possibilities. So the first possibility, Jacob understood what he was doing, and he understood that it wasn't going to change anything. He was simply going through the motions with the sticks in order to get others to believe that he was successfully practicing his magic. A way of gaining notoriety or honor for himself. I don't think that's the case. Why would Jacob want to draw attention to the fact that he's actively trying to take Laban's flocks away from him if he knew it wasn't going to work? So in my mind, it makes more sense that if this were the case, he would do nothing at all. And then when it happened, he could simply point to God when the accusation came that he was attempting to cheat Levon. I did nothing. I mean, that's the best defense against an accuser, right? And we'll actually see him use that defense in an upcoming chapter. And with Jacob actually doing things to change the outcome, then Levon and his sons, they now have grounds to accuse Jacob of stealing the flocks from him, of Jacob actively working to take his property. So the second possibility, and I think it's the one most likely, is that Jacob actually thought that what he was doing was the mechanism that God was going to use to achieve his blessing. Now, there have been some who add to the knowledge that God had given the vision, the, the part that this vision included instructions on doing this in order to get it happen. Uh, the idea goes that in the next chapter, in chapter 31, when we read of this vision that God gave him, that part of the vision that we don't read about is God saying, uh, cut stripes and sticks and put them in the water troughs so that while they're mating, this is going to happen. I don't find that highly likely. Uh, I think that when Jacob has the vision in the next chapter, it's actually occurring in the next chapter, and it's God recalling this and saying, yeah, you didn't do that. That was of me. But I fully believe that Jacob actually thought that the sympathetic magic was working. And the text itself gives us the idea that he did. He would put the rods in when the flocks were strong, and he would not put the rods in when they were weak. Now, some English translations in verse 43 would have us believe that it, in fact, was because of all this that Jacob increased by using phrases such as, thus it was. But in reality, all the Hebrew says is, and he increased. Not necessarily as a direct result, as the word thus would seem to indicate. Now, in the same story, when God gave the vision to Rachel that the older would serve the younger, no indication was given of how that was to be accomplished. And so, Rachel and Jacob, they entered into an exercise that could be condemned as immoral or even anti-God. In the same way, no indication is given here of how Jacob's blessing was to occur. And so, Jacob himself enters into a practice that can be considered immoral and anti-God in order to accomplish this thing that God had promised. Now, once again, we're left with two possibilities, this time from the point of view of God rather than the point of view of Jacob. We either have God honoring what Jacob was doing, 
or we have God working despite what Jacob was doing. So let's examine both of these ideas, uh, starting with the second, that God worked despite what Jacob did. Now this concept would give us the idea that God was not necessarily happy with what Jacob was doing, but that he continued to do it despite, because he needed Jacob to be blessed. He needed him to be bountiful when he returned to Canaan. Now God's plan is not going to be thwarted, simply to teach Jacob a lesson about the proper workings of the world. So this is the, the idea that many of us take into the story of Jephthah, that when he is told to go out and defeat the enemies of Israel in the book of Judges, he says, he offers to God, if you give me success, I will sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my, my house. Well, God knows his daughter is going to be the first thing to come out of his house, but does God overturn his well, sorry, now I can't let you win because you're going to do something stupid with that. That's the idea that we usually give to that passage, and that it's on Jephthah himself to do this thing that he had promised to do. This view doesn't care so much what humans do, because God's going to do what God is going to do, and we can just sit down here and we do our own thing, and it won't really matter to him. His plan will be accomplished. This idea, it smacks of predestination. We as people, we're simply playing out the plan of the universe that God has determined since the beginning of time. We have no free will. Everything that we do is, in fact, something that God has determined that we would do. And there are some verses and passages in Scripture that would seem to indicate that this is, in fact, the way the world works. Now, the second idea that we can explore here is that God was honoring what Jacob was doing. That God allowed Jacob to operate in this manner because Jacob didn't know any better. God took where Jacob was in his life, his societal, his cultural understanding, and he worked within it. He didn't disabuse it, but rather he simply allowed Jacob his own understanding of the way that the world worked to accomplish his goals. Now this idea, too, is one that we find reflected all through Scripture. God looking for and working with the people that he chooses, and he uses them in the midst of their own worldview to bring about his plan. Now, I don't know that we can properly define the difference here as to what exactly was God's reasoning, because we're not specifically told. And so I'm just going to leave it at that. These are the options. I don't think we should settle on one or the other. So regardless of this distinction, we can draw something that is wonderfully profound about the way that God operates from both of these views. And it's that God will meet a person where they are. He will work through that person's own understanding of the way of the world, and he will bring about his own plan. It's going to happen. Now, this is something that I think that many of us could benefit from really considering, just slowing down and taking some time to meditate on. There is some very visceral anti-science and specifically anti-medicine streak in the Torah movement. We tend to look at what our medical system has turned into and the ways in which they're wrong to their approach, and so we criticize anyone who may use their modern medicine. We criticize those who may practice modern medicine. We criticize the entire idea of modern medicine. And in doing so, we imply that modern medicine is a tool that cannot be used by God because it goes against what we know to be true of how our bodies work and how God provided for our health through his creation. Now, if I'm reading this passage accurately, and I've interpreted the way that God has acted, then that's a false understanding. Because what we see here is that God will work through whatever means are available. That means that God can use chemotherapy to destroy cancer. 
It means that God can use vaccines to prevent the spread of viruses. It means that he can use sympathetic magic to create spotted and speckled offspring for Jacob's benefit. Now, I could go through many more examples of God using people and methods that simply are not acceptable in our estimation to bring about the accomplishment of his work in our world. God isn't interested in giving people science lessons or physics lessons when he works. He's not interested in teaching proper cosmology or chemistry. He simply desires for people to know him and through knowledge of him to become more like him. That means that he will work however he works. He will work in your life based on where you're at in this moment. And he may or he may not use means that you find acceptable in doing so. It's taking me a very long time to come to this understanding. Uh, there was a time where I was almost violently anti-medicine, uh, anti-modern medicine, let me say. Let me tell you my story to help understand this. Nearly four years ago, my wife was sick. She was hurting all the time. I was convinced that there was nothing that medical science could do for her. You see, she had, before we got married, been diagnosed with Crohn's disease. And that Crohn's disease was something that had been with us through our marriage for a very long time. But before I got to this point, she had been healed of her Crohn's disease. In fact, using kinesiology, not a modern scientific medicine, it was discovered that she didn't in fact have Crohn's disease, but rather that she had severe food allergies to five different types of very common foods, including corn, rice, and soy. So at this point, four years ago, God had already delivered her. She had been well for a time. So the fact that she was hurting once again, in my mind, it left only one remaining option. She was falling back into her old patterns and her mind was creating the problem. We had oils, we had supplements, we had that wonderful kinesiologist that had healed her of what had been called Crohn's. We had Reiki, which I have since renounced. Uh, we had massage. We had so many means of natural healing that we could come up with. All of these had worked before. So if none of these was working now, then all that was left was that it, this was a symptom of her own hypochondria hypochondriacism, hypochondriacism, I don't know how to say that. Anyway, in my mind, she was creating the problem, and under no condition was I going to allow her to see a doctor, because in my mind, the only thing a doctor could do would be to give her drugs or to cut her open, and those were bad things in my mind. Well, fortunately for both of us, she didn't listen to me. She didn't submit like a good wife. And it was this that saved her life. In fact, she finally left me because I was becoming increasingly emotionally abusive towards her for what I was perceiving as her problems, among some other things that were going on in our lives at that time. All of that will be part of the testimony that I am writing that will one day be released through Dereshchai. But anyway, so the morning... The fateful morning that she left, she went to her mom's. And by 8 p.m. that night, she was in emergency surgery to have a severe pocket of infection removed from her abdominal cavity from a rupture that had occurred in her colon. She very nearly died. 
and it was only medical science that saved her. Cutting and drugs, the two things that I despised, saved her life. Not submitting to her husband, something that we would consider sin, saved her life. God worked in our current societal paradigm to accomplish his purposes. And one of those major purposes was to get me to question the assumptions that I had been forming in my own mind, to question what I thought I knew of the world. God worked through her disobedience and her nonconformity to the letter of the law to bring relief and healing to her. I mean, this is similar to when Yeshua touched the leper. That was not to be done according to the letter of the law. And yet he did it anyway. And he brought life to a flesh that was dead. Now, this episode with Jacob, I see as being something very similar. Because in this case, Jacob expected his sympathetic magic to be something that worked. To be the means by which God's promised increase would be accomplished. Now, it's something that we would know after further revelation to be a sin. And yet, God is using his nonconformity to the letter of the law to accomplish the means of blessing of Jacob. He was working within the prevailing cultural understanding to bring about his own will of blessing in this situation. And I think that this can be summed up by stating that God meets us where we are. He doesn't require us to be somewhere before he can meet us. And we see this all through scripture. And that's something that I've touched on in the past when we discussed Stephen's defense in Acts 7. Stephen was raised using the Samaritan Pentateuch, a work that many today would not call scripture. And yet it was what Stephen knew, and God worked through Stephen's knowledge of that faulty text. Did God give Stephen knowledge of what the Hebrew Torah said? No. Under the influence of the Holy Spirit, Stephen made many multiple mistakes in his defense, mistakes that we can prove to be false, using Scripture. If you want more information on that, go back and listen to the third teaching, uh, all the way back to episode 3. So in the same way here, God did not change the assumptions of men when he worked. Many times, as we look through Scripture, Hashem works within the cultural paradigms, in order to accomplish his purposes. Because God, God's not limited by our understandings, our thoughts, or our expectations. He can work at any time, in any place, and he can use whatever misunderstanding may be prevalent or assumed in our culture to do what he is going to do. I think that all too often we limit God based on how we think that he should act. And we don't allow him to work in whatever way, and I mean whatever way, he is going to act. God can work through superstition. God can work through science. God can work through miracle. God can work in any way that he chooses. There is nothing in this world that can limit him. And that that is a powerful idea because it allows us to be more forgiving of others who don't conform to our own ideas of how the world works. When we get stuck in an assumptive rut that demands that others think the same way that we do, 
and we claim that God doesn't work through certain means, we are limiting God. And it is this that this Parsha speaks on. But that's not all. There are several other themes that are in play in this Parsha that we really should recognize. The first is one that again carries over from last week. The opening verse of last week's Parsha stated that God saw that Leah was unloved, and so he blessed her. And this reveals to us that God chooses the unloved. He chooses the overlooked, the dregs of society that most would simply dismiss. This week we see Jacob acting in the same way, and I touched on it earlier. The spotted, the speckled sheep were not as desirable as the pure because any wool that would come from those sheep would also be spotted and speckled. The end product wouldn't be pure, and so it wouldn't fetch the high prices when it was sold or traded. Now, Jacob chose these sheep specifically because they were undesirable. In his choosing, he elevated them to a position of honor, even if that position was simply a position in his own family. Again, was it the vision that we're told of later or his own understanding that Laban would be willing to part with those less desirable things? We can't know how it is that Jacob arrived at this decision. What we can know is that Jacob chose the least of the flocks, and he was blessed with an overabundance of them. Add to this that Laban was looking at his flocks on the outside, looking on that outward perfection, whereas Jacob was judging with a different measure. Another theme that we can see reflected in this Parsha is one that's been present since Genesis 1, and that's one of separation and division according to kinds. In this Parsha, we see the property of Levan and the property of Jacob being separated from each other. The separation that occurs is a separation of a three-day journey. Jacob's property is given into the hand of the unrighteous and the unscrupulous sons of Levan, and Laban's property is given into the hands of Jacob. As he continues to bear his own, Jacob then separates the pure coats from the speckled coats for his own breeding program. And the end result is that Jacob's property increases and Laban's decreases. The theme as we see it represented throughout scripture is that separation along proper lines is what creates the space for life to flourish. But in the end, just as always seems to occur, the blessing that God gives to his servant is looked on with jealousy and envy by those who have not been blessed. This is always the case. Again, episode 3. We saw this last week even, as Leah was blessed and Rachel was not, and Rachel's response was to react in jealousy, to the point where she took all of Jacob's time away from Leah. We saw this when Jacob was blessed by Isaac and Esau was not. Esau sought to kill Jacob. We saw this when Isaac was blessed in Gerar, and then the Philistine continued to destroy his wells. You're being blessed, you're being blessed, get out of here. And we saw this when the king of Sodom saw Avram being blessed by Melchizedek. The king of Sodom wanted blessing from Avraham too. And as I said, we saw this all the way back when Abel was blessed over Cain. This is a story as old as time. When one person is blessed over another, envy is not far off. The desire to possess what the other possesses takes hold. And then that old familiar feeling of being cheated, of something that you deserve, of someone else receiving what you have worked for, of someone else getting what you have dreamed of. 
Nothing causes strife within a family more than those who have placed themselves as rivals, seeing their perceived opponents being successful. Now this in itself, it leads to further separation and division as the blessed and not blessed pit themselves against each other. This Parsha, it confuses and it confounds us. And yet, there's a whole lot to learn here if we simply dig a little deeper than the surface reading and the specifics. God is not condoning magic in this Parsha, just as he was not condoning deception and favoritism in previous Parshas. But God does work with us where we are, and we are not going to be perfect. That's not what matters. What matters is his love for his people. And as we will find out in the end, that's the entire thrust of the book of Genesis. What man intended as evil, what man does as evil, God works out for the good of those who love him. If you understand, good. When we get to the end of Genesis, we'll really dig into that concept in the last episode. But that remains that if you are in Messiah, God's on your side. He will do what it takes to accomplish his plan in your life. The fact is, is we will all fail to live up to his expectations because we all hold ideas that don't line up with reality in some way. Don't be too hard on yourself. And more importantly, don't be too hard on others. This is a process. None of us are there. So as you derish chai, as you seek life, pray and ask God to work with you. And he will. And that, that's a thought that we can take comfort in. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Derish Chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Derish Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.